Welcome to the 422nd episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thank you for listening. This is the weekend of the Treasure Coast Stewart, Treasure Coast Marathon in Stewart, Florida. The Stewart, Florida is supposed to be the friendliest little town in Florida, and I'd have to agree, it's a pretty nice little town, so we're looking forward to going back and visiting with, with a whole new group of plant-based striders, so I uh, can't wait for Sunday, it's going to be a hot one, I think the high temperature of 88, so uh, everybody's going to get their taste of Florida sunshine. One of the most dangerous things about running a marathon in the heat is actually overhydration versus underhydration. We know that when you lose a significant amount of fluids through sweating and become dehydration, performance slacks off a little bit, but it just causes people to slow down and you can't overheat and there's always a possibility of heat exhaustion, but with the advent of Gatorade uh, way back in the, I guess, um, 80s, 70s, 80s, people were taught to overhydrate. Um, it, was, it was built as an electrolyte, electrolyte replacement solution. But the reality of it is the amount of electrolytes in Gatorade and over-the-counter sports drinks is not all that great. And because they're a little bit concentrated and sweet, you tend to overconsume. So you can actually drink too much water and dilute your sodium. And that's a bigger deal because um, it can cause brain swelling, diarrhea, um, mental confusion, and actually ultimate death if the brain swells too much. So it's still better to drink to thirst um, and keep hydrated. And obviously, it's even better to practice in the heat. Now, a lot of people come into Florida this week, and especially with these hot temperatures, not going to get a real good chance to practice. But um, again, it's, it's, um, it's better to drink to thirst. And, um, you know, about a bottle, 24 ounces of usually about an hour is not a bad place to start. But um, we, we're not encouraging, you know, the, some of the worst outcomes in marathons have been the slowest runners because they come to the aid stations every three miles and they would be encouraged to drink a cup or two cups of water and then if you're out there for you know six hours in a marathon then you can consume too much fluid so uh, again uh, about 24 ounces um, an hour is probably a fairly good estimate and then gauge that on thirst in the news, in the medical literature, uh, there was a study looking at aspirin and a possible reduction in ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer is very hard to detect. Um, it's difficult to, for early detection especially. There's no good blood test. Uh, certainly CTing every woman's abdomen uh, is unnecessary radiation. Um, annual exams don't really detect masses, and if there's already a mass um, that can be detected, uh, it's probably pretty far along, so that's been the problem with ovarian cancer in the past. And so the question is whether um, aspirin might cause a reduction in ovarian cancer. And they looked um, back at eight case control studies and um, found 4,476 cases uh, of ovarian cancer and 6,659 control cases. And there was about a 2% difference in overall incidence of ovarian cancer with aspirin, so not a big change. 
but the the people that wrote the study, you know, um, were optimistic. But again, um, not enough cases to really understand if aspirin plays a role and is worth the risk versus benefits in every woman with, um, you know, that might uh, be at risk for ovarian cancer. The main ingredient in aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid, and that is made chemically. Um, Bayer Company was the first to do it. The major side effect of aspirin um, is bleeding, and it could be gastrointestinal bleeding, and it can also be cerebral vascular bleeding in the incidence of a stroke. And so when you're looking at ovarian cancer, um, the population that it typically occurs in is postmenopausal women, which are going to make them at a, a somewhat higher incidence of stroke anyway. So the question is, the risk outweigh the benefits? Uh, because again, this was looking at ovarian cancer incidence. It wasn't looking at any complications of aspirin overall. But the good news is that acetyl, acetyl salicylic acid is a compound that is derived from salicylic acid, which is present in a lot of vegetables. One of the main ones, um, broccoli, cauliflower, cucumbers, mushrooms, radishes, spinach, zucchini, eggplant, tomatoes, many spices such as basil, cumin, oregano, clove. So the question comes back, why don't we just promote eating salicylates in the form of vegetables? Broccoli and cauliflower are also cruciferous vegetables that, that uh, show benefits um, with regards to decreasing the incidence of breast cancer. So do mushrooms uh, have the effect of uh, estrogen blockade somewhat like tamoxifen? So put all those natural foods together in a stir fry and you have a good dinner of cancer prevention. In the past, aspirin has been touted as um, to prevent coronary, acute coronary events, to prevent heart attacks. Um, but women were actually never included in any of the cardiovascular studies. So you can never say that um, aspirin prevents heart attack in women anyway. Aspirin inhibits um, thromboxine A2, so it decreases platelet stickiness, but again, decreases your ability to clot, and that can last seven to 10 days. Um, Aspirin also works on your brain and the hypothalamus area to reset and reduce body temperature. Um, so, you know, in the past, people have taken aspirin for fevers, uh, again, with the concurrent side effects um, and lack of long-term data. It's really not recommended even in, in the, you know, preventing cardiovascular events. And again, the risk of cerebrovascular bleeding especially in women, might outweigh any of the benefits. So back to eating the vegetables. Often people come into my office after they've had a physical ailment such as, uh, and maybe a prosthetic replacement of the knee or hip. And typically after um, they get a knee or hip replacement, they're referred for physical therapy. Um, same way after a heart attack, people are referred for cardiac rehabilitation, and all of those therapies have been shown to help people recover more quickly. We know that getting people out of bed um, very quickly after surgery, getting people up and moving after a heart attack is actually um, much, has many benefits um, to prevent blood clot formation and increase mobility. And so it's the earlier the better we can get people up and moving. 
The question comes is, do people do it on their own? And often I find when people come in for their, to tell me about they've had a knee replacement, or they had a hip replacement, or they're going to physical, they're going to cardiac rehab, it's three days a week and they don't do anything in between those other three days a week. They might go through some of the motions, um, but for the most part, they don't do much rehab on their own. And the question is why? Nobody ever said not to do anything on your own. Why don't people do the same physical therapy exercises or something similar at home or as many as they would when they're actually going uh, and getting physical therapy with somebody watching them do the exercises? I'm also going to link that to patient's nutrition. So a lot of people don't go to the extra yard to make food for themselves that is nutritious or changing their nutrition to a plant-based way of eating because it's not readily um, for themselves. So if the rest of the family doesn't eat that way, then typically they don't eat that way. And I think we can link it to self-care and how a lot of humans believe that they're not worthy to take care of themselves and maybe it's not a good idea to take care of yourself before you take care of others. So it's one thing to take care of other people, but when it comes to actually spending time doing physical therapy on themselves, cooking for themselves in a special way, they don't feel worthy. And whether that's a conscious decision or, and I think most of the time it's not a conscious decision, it's just um, we put ourselves off for potentially other people and we don't want to make waves for the other people, perhaps. There was a study looking at peripheral vascular disease and we know that if people walk to the point where they get discomfort in their legs and then they stop and rest and then they go on, they have a great improvement in collateral blood flow and improvement in general blood flow to their legs. The study looked at whether or not um, they went for physical therapy or they had someone there to observe them while they walked. And it was much more successful if they had somebody uh, there watching them do the exercise. So if they went to physical therapy and they walked on a treadmill, they were much more successful at walking, getting discomfort, starting back again than they would be at home just on their own. And even if they can see the improvements at the physical therapy place, they still don't do it at home for the most part. The same way with nutrition, even though people know that eating increased greens can generate the production of nitric oxide and decrease chest pain, decrease peripheral vascular disease, um, actually reverse coronary artery disease, they still don't do it if it's not convenient for everybody. We know that eating dairy results in casein protein stimulating an autoimmune response in a lot of people, and it can result in autoimmune diseases like arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, um, multiple sclerosis, and there's probably a connection with Parkinson's as well, that there's an inflammatory component with the neurons and a generation of part of the brain. And we go to great lengths to explain that in our practice, how dairy actually works to harm people. Yet I heard the other day in someone that had Parkinson's that, well, I still like cheese once in a while because it's a comfort food.
but I don't think it's so much of a comfort food as is a quick food that everybody likes. And again, it doesn't draw attention to yourself. So I think there's a combination of feeling guilty for taking care of yourself that you may be taking care of yourself before you take care of others. And I also think that there's also a component where people would like to be taken care of. And it may be such that people are caregivers and they're just kind of waiting for someone to show them that they care enough to take care of them and to change what they're eating for them. And they wait and it never happens and it's a big disappointment. And it's almost a reinforcement that they're not worthy of self-care or worthy of being healthy. On the other hand, I think most people agree that serving others and helping others brings a great joy and great satisfaction. But we can't effectively help others if we're not healthy. So I've seen this behavior over and over again, and it's not unique to certain individuals. It's, you know, it's largely across the board in people that aren't doing well. So I would encourage you to carve out a little time for exercise in the morning uh, when no one's around to bother you, when you can have some me time uh, before you go to work, or uh, again, when there's less chance of somebody um, interrupting a routine that you can do that's actually going to be benefit your own health when it comes to movement and exercise. And as far as nutrition, Again, I mean, ultimately, we know that if we take good care of ourselves and we cook nutrition's food and we share it with others, it's only going to make them better. It's not going to make them worse. There's no diet. There's no plant-based foods that's going to hurt somebody. So uh, the reality of it is if you're taking care of yourself and you're sharing it with others, you're still helping others. In our practice, um, I have people that are diabetic um, email me or text me in the morning with their blood glucose. And I've said it before on the podcast and people that actually check in with their blood glucose do much better and get their diabetes under control much quicker than the people that don't. And, you know, without fail, the people that quit checking in are usually the ones that um, have slipped, went back to their old ways and, and they quit checking their glucose. The same thing happens with appointments. Um, and in my practice, it's small. We see people when they need to be seen, but it becomes difficult sometimes because people either forget their appointment or they don't show up for their appointment. And again, they put everything else in front of taking care of their own health. And those are typically the people that aren't doing well. I believe everyone's worthy of being healthy and taking time for self-care to take care of themselves. But I also believe that that has to start from within. And then when you start taking care of yourself, I believe people will see that as a sign that they want to help as well. No matter how many ways I explain nutrition to people, if they don't want to change, they don't. Fear is not a good motivator. Um, telling people what they should do is not a good motivator. Threats are not a good motivator. It has to come within. If you can just get that little spark and see that little bit of improvement, I think it's much easier to continue uh, than to you know, kind of go down that. Again, it seems like it's a vicious cycle. 
What people do have time for are biohacks. Uh, the most recent one I saw um, online was injecting peptides. Um, and typically these are hormone precursors such as hormones for growth factor, human growth factors or estrogen or testosterone. And you can actually buy these online now and inject them. And somebody in the back, you know, online will give you some sort of guidance, even though they really don't know you, you can dial in what you, you really want. And these can range from $150 to $900 a month, depending on how many and what you get. Typically, they're done on a daily basis, and um, they have uh, disclaimers that if you stop them, then all the benefits will go right away. And even on the website, they talk about side effects. Um, your appetite could go up, it could down, you could retain fluid, you could get dry mouth, your glucose could go up, you could be tired, you could gain weight, your joints could hurt, you could have swelling, infection. But then they go on to say 90% of pe 98% of people uh, like what they see. Um, and again, you have to maintain these injections um, to get any benefits. So people are drawn in that they have to continue this. You know, it's going to change. I'm going to build better any time now um, as long as I do these injections. And again, it does nothing to change one's overall health because you're injecting these amino acids into your system into a very complex system with feedback loops and uh, stimulator, stimulating proteins, and there's not one little thing that you can inject in that doesn't have a consequence on the other side, and who knows how many different ways you can get in trouble with it. But apparently, uh, it must be a pretty good seller because, again, uh, the websites are, are pretty extensive and multiple. I would not advise doing that. Other forms of supplements um, that people can take in vitamins and other nutraceuticals, um, you know, different greens and powders and mixtures really don't substitute for what we can get out of whole foods. Our body doesn't recognize powders. Um, it's not a standardized industry. Um, some powders don't contain near what they're supposed to contain. And again, powders are lacking hydration, powders are lacking fiber. So try to get your nutrients uh, for the most part through whole fruits and vegetables. My training's going well. Uh, again, we're going to do the marathon this weekend. And then in April, uh, we have the Brazos Bend 50 miler which is a flat course, not too many routes, so I hope I stay off the ground. And that'll be anticipation for our big race in July, the uh, Silver Rush 50 back in Leadville. Yesterday, we signed up to be um, to volunteer at the Leadville 100 trail race in August. And I'm over the moon excited about going out and volunteering for um, this race. One, we're going to be at Hope Pass, which is at the highest point of the race. And, you know, we can see, and we're going to be a second shift. So we'll see people coming in between, you know, they'll be around um, between mile 50 and 60 coming back through for the most part. And then I guess um, some will be going out still. So we'll hike out uh, to Hope Pass and, um, 
that's a significant hike out. And then we'll spend eight hours out there from, uh, I believe it's one to 11 and then, um, hike back. So we'll get to be in the dark. We'll get to hike on the trail, uh, that the hundred mile uh, race is run and we'll get to do part of it in the dark. So, uh, I'm really excited about that. We'll get to experience the weather at night. So that'll be helpful. So if we get the opportunity to do it the following year, um, we'll have a little insight into what's at the aid station, what kind of problems people face, what do people like us that look like us experience when they're coming through those, um, those checkpoints and, and get a sense um, of you know, the lay of the land. The last time that I volunteered for a race to get into a race was my first Ironman. And it was kind of funny back then because I volunteered. Um, if you wanted to get into Florida Ironman way back, uh, you needed to, if you wanted to get into the race, you needed to volunteer the year before. And so I went out and worked the medical tent and I spent, and, and I worked the medical tent and I worked a couple other places, uh, during the day, but the medical tent, you know, people coming in dehydrated and starting some IVs and seeing people that got sick and didn't finish and got overhydrated. And I still wanted to sign up for the Ironman the next year. And I did, uh, and it was still one of my best Ironman races ever. And so it's kind of funny this year we're signing up to volunteer so that we can, um, one, see the, see the course. Uh, I, I'm excited about volunteering because I have fallen in love with the whole concept of the Leadville Race the Series and the people that run it. Um, but it also gets us up in the lottery to get a chance to get in for the next year to run the 100-mile race. So it's kind of funny. Um, we're going to... Um, volunteer to see things that should scare us away from wanting to do the race, but it's going to make us want to do the race even more. I was listening to a podcast. Um, a guy was being interviewed that did ultra marathons and talking about, you know, why he did some of these, you know, really long hundred mile races. And he said, you know, I've never, I had a pretty good life. I never had to physically struggle uh, or be put in terribly uncomfortable situations, and it's a way to um, test my body and to test my tr troubleshooting skills, for the most part, uh, or for lack of a better word, uh, in doing things that are, are really hard. And that's a lot about what I, you know, think of and, and when I want to do some of these longer events and to keep going back out, even though um, I'm getting up in age groups. Um, I want to see how long that I can continue to do those type of things. And from what I've seen, um, there are people out there of a lot older than I am that um, still take on these big challenges. They're not all that many, but they're there. And I think the more people that put themselves outside of their comfort zone and push their bodies as we get older are only better for it. And we see a lot of research to support that and that, you know, as long as you keep exercising and you keep your musculoskeletal system intact and you keep your balance and you keep your mitochondria, you know, numbers and quantities working, then your chance at a healthy uh, healthy older years and healthy health span increases. So there's nothing to benefit one by being sedentary. There will be much joy this weekend when um, our members 
meet each other and cross the finish line, even though people will be tired and hot and sweaty and probably even a little sunburn. Uh, the joy from accomplishing a task that you put yourself in an, in your outside of your comfort zone and you're not quite sure if you're going to finish the event or not still makes it all worthwhile. And I think that's a form of self-care as well. Um, you're improving your health span by getting out of your comfort zone, moving a little bit more than you feel comfortable, eating things differently than you would, um, you know, changing your nutrition to make it support a healthy lifestyle is all about self-care and setting example from others and declaring to some, to some degree that you're worth having a good health span. You're worthy of having a good health span. I don't think there's any room for settling when it comes to that. So I look forward to sharing uh, what happens this weekend with you all. Addie Delaney Minerich, our registered dietitian, will be coming in with my grandson Caleb to go to the race and cheer us all on and uh, be a, a part of the support crew. So we're going to have a great time. Hope to see you there someday, uh, maybe next year. If you would like to find out how you could become part of our practice and uh, improve your self-care and health span, Visit the website at drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, or email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. Um, be happy to talk to you about the practice and how we can help you achieve your health care goal or health span goals. So thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.